Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 211th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Kristen Herod. Kristen is the founder of her eponymous marketing consulting firm for advisors, with a particular focus on both helping to coach solo advisors to the next level and providing outsourced CMO services to mid-sized RAs. What's unique about Kristen, though, is that she isn't only a marketing consultant to advisors, but spent eight years building her own independent advisory firm, which she launched from scratch and had an incredibly fast growth start to nearly $200,000 of financial planning fee revenue alone in barely three years, and of course, grew even further in the years that followed, all from applying her advisor marketing principles first and foremost to herself. And now she's built a consulting business to teach others to do the same. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Kristen's background in consumer marketing with a focus on building brand loyalty and retention programs provided a foundation for her to launch and market her own advisory firm, why Kristen chose from the start to focus in on a niche before she even figured out what to call the firm or how to structure her services, the way Kristen's clear focus on a particular target market of new and expected parents in dual-income households in San Francisco gave her opportunities to market in an extremely cost-effective way. And the way that Kristen marketed and offered welcome kits to her prospects before the first meeting with her to make it easier to convince them to work with her as someone who wasn't naturally inclined towards sales herself. We also talk about Kristen's journey through the advisory industry, how her work in consumer marketing at large financial services firms from Chase Manhattan Bank to Charles Schwab built her initial awareness of the financial advisor industry, why it was an interest in life coaching, actually, that ended out being Kristen's initial pathway to decide to launch her own advisory firm, how Kristen overcame the unexpected career challenges that arose when she made the personal life decision to give her children a chance to live in a foreign country and had to uproot her own business in the process. And why in the end, Kristen's passion for advisor marketing ultimately led her to transition her clients to the other advisors she recruited into her firm so that she could focus her full time on coaching other advisors in their marketing instead. And be certain to listen to the end, where Kristen shares her tips on how advisors can find the right target market to focus on when they're not sure which one to pursue, the ways that a strong and persistent marketing process can make it easier for those who otherwise struggle with their sales process. And why, once again, selecting her own clear target market to work with, now in her advisor marketing business, is allowing Kristen to have her best business year ever in 2020, despite the turmoil of the pandemic. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kristen Herod. Welcome, Kristen Herod, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm excited about today's episode and and to get to talk a little bit more about marketing, which has kind of been a theme that we've been covering over a number of the recent episodes of the podcast. I think in, in part just because it's 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 kind of a topic du jour in our advisor world right now. You know, all all the things we used to do to market, or at least many of the things we used to do to market, kind of broke when suddenly we <laughs> couldn't go in person to networking meetings around client appreciation events and all all the things that we've done historically and for a lot of advisory firms that either means reinventing their marketing or just inventing their marketing because we didn't necessarily maybe have a marketing system before we just 
networked and went to center of influence meetings and gathered client referrals more passively. And now suddenly that doesn't work quite as well as it used to. And we have to start doing our marketing for the first time. And I know you have an interesting journey around this, both as someone who came into the advisor industry and built a, an advisory firm from scratch and, and had some some pretty quick and rapid growth early on in, in part from marketing well, because you had a bit of a marketing background and then transitioned to be focused on marketing consulting with advisors. And, and as I'm sure you know, as, as well, there are actually not a lot of marketing consultants to advisors that have actually been advisors and built their own firms and like literally did it for themselves and also helped teach and explain other advisors how to do it. And so the fact that you have lived both of those perspectives makes me really excited to talk today about the dynamics of marketing and and you know how you think through some of that stuff based on not just what you talk to advisors about, but like literally what you did when you right. built your advisory firm coming in cold without necessarily having a, a natural market industry background and saying, okay, I'm hanging my shingle. I guess we got to get this going somehow. Right, exactly. And I do think, you know, many years later now, looking back, that has been absolutely ridiculously beneficial for me and for my clients and being able to say, you know what, actually, I, I remember when I was in that situation or here's how I handled that situation when it came up, or it might be a little different today, but I know the same concept still applies. So there's no question having had that experience has given me a unique perspective on how to approach marketing for advisors. So I, I'm very appreciative of having gone through that. So we'll, we'll get to talk a lot in a few minutes about kind of the marketing work you do now, including some of what you're what you're seeing in practice as advisory firms all over the country adapt to the the pandemic environment. But I'd love to start by just understanding the journey on the advisory firm end. Like as you came into the industry and started doing this from scratch, like where were you coming from? What brought you into advisor world and 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 what was that initial kind of journey and creation story of saying, I'm, I'm going to be an advisor and launch my own firm? Yes, exactly. A good question. And I'm probably going to have the journey a bit back more in time to set the foundation for what made that pivot happen. The pivot happened in 2005, end of 2005, early 2006. To date myself, I graduated from college in 93. So that's 1993, everyone. And so I had a, a whole career before I moved into starting my own firm. And it started out of the gate from I was recruited from college to go to Chase Manhattan Bank at the time, which now is JP Morgan Chase, to be in one of those training programs where you're with like 13 other college grads and we rotate through different product marketing rotations and you and you learn about the business. So it was in a marketing position there, very product marketing focused. So you were coming in in a marketing context, not necessarily like a a finance economics context into Chase Manhattan. This was like right, coming no. into a marketing context of okay, well if you're going to market around here, you've got to learn all the different products and things that we offer here at Chase Manhattan Bank. So we're going to rotate you through some of the divisions, the companies, so you can start seeing the stuff we offer so that eventually you can figure out how you're going to market and sell this. Correct. And I was in the institutional side. So, 
talk about dry, but interesting. And I didn't even know what that meant when I went there. You know, I had studied marketing in undergrad. I had a got a bachelor of science in economics with a concentration in marketing. So I was super fascinated by marketing. And then, you know, so you did actually have that kind of intersection, like econ major with concentration in marketing ended out in finance firm in marketing roles. So this, yes, this was kind of yes. aligned, at least on that side. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton undergrad, which is known for recruiting, known for its finance programs, really, and recruiting in t- as Wall Street analysts. So a lot of people were getting recruited and going into that. I was in the minority that studied marketing there and wanted to get, I want, really wanted to get into advertising and marketing and your P&G brand marketing jobs were big ones coming out of there and different ones. So I did that. But while I was there, I was like bored out of my mind. I mean, I had great colleagues and I liked the people. Because you were still in like trainee mode and just it took a long time to yes, get the training yes. stuff or you, or you started doing marketing was like, oh, oh, shoot, maybe this isn't what well, I want to do. and it was do. institutional, like institutional trust services and it was cash management and lots of things. I'm like, I'm not even understanding what this is slash. I thought I was going to get to work on something more consumer focused or I thought I didn't care, I guess, while I was there. And then as I was there, I started reading this book by Stan Rapp. He founded Rapp Collins, a direct marketing agency in New York. And it was a book called Beyond Maxi Marketing. And I think he had written a previous book that was called Maxi Marketing. But this was called Beyond Maxi Marketing. And I remember distinctly sitting at my desk there and like kind of sneaking it under my desk and reading and taking it to my lunch breaks and reading because this was back when it was very structured. Like the corporate world was just a whole different thing. So you're like, okay, well, when I go on my lunch, I'll take this with me and I will go and read this. And in that, I mean, I just had the light bulb go off because he was talking about a shift from mass marketing to an individualized approach where you put the customer interest first. And he had a concept called caring and daring, which was around, you know, caring about what the customer wanted and then daring to do something creative about it. And perhaps the most interesting thing to me on that was this focus on total relationship management, which ultimately became the theme of kind of my my approach and my my work in marketing over the next like decade and a half and even up to today. But just I was so entranced by this idea of direct marketing, which was about, you know, individualized marketing based on what you know about a consumer and creating an experience that would make them fall in love with you and want to stay with you and then ultimately refer you. So I was really drawn into that. And he had different examples in the book. And the only one I can remember was the Harley Davidson and how they inspired everyone to drive their Harleys down and come to this annual event and talked about all of what it took to build a loyal base. And I was like, this, I want to do this. So it was very exciting. And again, I feel like we we have to put this in context because, you know, a lot of marketing today takes this approach. But in the in the mid 1990s, when you're reading this, like this is this is revolutionary in the context because everything is big billboard advertising, big media advertising, television. Yeah, it was all about the glamour of television and and big ads and. 
I guess, I guess like we had just launched MTV, but we were mostly still on three or four TV stations for most people in most areas. We all watched a couple of shows with a couple of ads. Right, right. And, the, you know, and magazine ads and, and newspaper, everything like you were, you were doing ads. And so luckily I started looking for a new job, which that was to my father's dismay because I had a decent, you know, a nice corporate job. And then I was like, I'm going to go work in advertising. And he was like, they're fly by night. You're going to lose your job. But why are you doing this? So just to be clear, you went from like stable mega national bank Yes. To like, let's go into the ad, the hot, cold advertising. Yes, like exactly. And he didn't understand it or know it. So it was, you know, I interviewed around and I found this position at Gray Direct. So Gray Advertising at the time, and I don't know where it stands today, was the largest advertising agency in the country. So they had an arm called Gray Direct Marketing, and they happened to have the Chase Manhattan Consumer brands account which was an you know easy in for me to be able to apply for the job right it was like assistant account executive so you didn't necessarily like get referred in by the fact that you have oh, to be at chase at the, at the time but it was just i i know they actually have this account so at least if i can say i'm from the inside maybe that like gives me a little bit of a leg in to yes and i wasn't even working on the consumer brands but i was right. at chase manhattan so early on i was able to position it and say look I'm it's on your business card account yes here's my <laughs> chase card yes and so i got that job pretty easily of course in my memory it may have been a lot more stressful at the time but so i did I came in and I loved it. And it was, we weren't even at the main headquarters of Gray Advertising, which was not even on Madison Avenue, but it was this giant building on Third Avenue down by Smith and Walensky, if you've ever been in New York. We did mailers that had complex test matrices for testing different intro rates or all kinds of features. And, and do we put the intro rate on the outside cover or do we talk about a benefit or how do you design the outer envelope sophisticated a b testing when these weren't just like clicks of a mouse button this was literally like we're going to print ten thousand with this envelope and ten thousand with this envelope and then we'll see how many reply to the envelopes that we mail and i think to your point it's so important that people understand that at the time it was all about the tv ad right like which commercial was coming on and that was the glamour and the fun and then you'd have i'd be like oh i'm at gray direct and we do mailing you know we send postcards to people. They're awesome. Yeah, and po- yeah, and and print ads. And our print ads were for home equity lines of credit. And so it was like I remember sitting in focus group testing and showing: Does it more appealing that you use your home equity line of credit to pay for education, or to do a home remodel, or consolidate debt, or what? I, I forget each of the things, but that's what I would have done today if I were thinking about it. But or pre the tax change, but that would we test the ads and did it work and so all of the detail behind direct marketing of like how do we prompt an action from a consumer to get them to engage so it taught me quite a lot and then i also while i was there started working on the launch of rogaine over the counter so it was getting approved by the fda the hair re- regrowth treatment that you may know from the pharmacy and Upjohn company. 
And so there I learned all about activation, retention, and loyalty marketing. It was all about having to teach compliance with using the product. So you had to be, you know, once they bought the product off the shelf, we had a card inside the box. Because again, the internet wasn't happening yet. (laughs) Right. I guess we had made net scape, but nobody really knew how to use it yet. <laughs> Boxes of row game were on the shelves. And then we had a card inside there to sign up for the loyalty program, the rewards program, right? And so someone had to fill out the card and send it in, much like you'd go to a landing page now and hit submit, right? So you'd fill out the card and send it in. And then we had these mailings we would send out and we'd send a monthly mailings, month one, two, and three. And then we like across the first six months, because you needed to use the product for at least four months to see results. And if you didn't use the product correctly, it wasn't going to work. So it was in credit card marketing, we call it activation because you, we want you to not only apply and get the card, but to actually use it. Right. So activation marketing. And then in this, it was activation or in the pharmaceutical world, we'd call it compliance, right? Like trying to get someone to comply with the usage of it so they can get the results. So you framed this as activation, retention, and loyalty, I guess. Can you, yeah. can you help just sort of define what these are? I guess how they're separate. Cause like the, the way you're defining activation, like, you know, I want you to make sure you do it and stick with it. I think is how some of us would kind of think about retention or loyalty, but those seem to be different pieces here. So like, well, activation is really the initial use of okay. the product, right? So in, in terms of a credit card, you can be sent a credit card, but if you don't actually use it, you know, if you... Right, then they don't get a scrape of my stuff, so it's not working, right? So you can't... They can retain you as a customer, as in you still have the card, but you're not using it. And then in the Rogaine world, it's like, well, you could dabble, but if you don't follow... It's one would say it's also education of use. Activation was really a credit card term or finance term, but it was really if we don't get you using the product right away and using it correctly, it's not going to help you. It's kind of like in the financial advisor world when people, if people say, yes, I want to work with you and then they never, you know, you can't get them to get their documents uploaded to the vault, right? So that you can start to do the work and you have to keep nagging them like, I need this statement. I need this information. It's like, if they don't give you any of that input, you can't deliver the service to them. Right? Right. So it's the same thing. It's like, we need you to be doing this correctly and engaging from the start to be able to make the progress you want. Which I think has as I'm sure you'll talk about soon, like interesting parallels when you get into our advisor world that I think has a lot of the same phenomenon of prospective clients may reach out for a lot of reasons and kind of say they're interested in advice and doing something, but actually getting them to the finish line of like doing something, I guess, activation, the credit card context, implementation in the, in the advisor context is actually a big deal. You know, we've, we've all had our share of clients are like, they seem super enthusiastic and they were all excited and they came on board and then they never actually followed through on their plan and did anything. Right. No, yes, there's the piece of not following through on the plan. And then there's the kind of pre-client phase where it's the lead to client situation of like, how do we take them from being a lead to getting them to actually become a client? And so 
the same concepts of conversion and stuff. So, but that that idea of retention marketing and ongoing communication of like from the time someone expressed interest in your product to then being able to continually communicate and interact with them so that they can experience the value of your service is what we were, I was learning at the time there. Like if some, if you want someone engaged in using your product, so they bought the Rogaine, they signed up. If they don't engage and use it over and over again, then they're not going to see the results and they won't buy again. Right. So we mailed them every month a package, a very ornate like welcome kit package with the initial was a welcome kit and it talked about these different things. And then there were follow-up pieces, each with their own messages and elements. And and it was a multi-piece mailing that would go out very expensive, right? So, and that would go out over time. But then I think about it in tying to the financial planning world, it's the idea of now someone raises their hand and says, hey, I'm interested mildly. I've downloaded something from your website. I've put my email in. I've signed up for a webinar. How is it that you are continuing to engage with that person over time so that they then realize the, the value of what you have to offer and move deeper into the relationship? So it, it's really about starting to build that trust helping someone find results, helping them move into the relationship. So it's, it's different when you're marketing a product, obviously, versus, versus a service. But the, the fundamentals of thinking about marketing as the entirety of what is your brand, what do you stand for, what is the key consumer insight that we know about people that we're going to hone in and focus on so that we have a very specific target audience. That was the strategic element behind that I learned at Gray that we had to sit down and figure out before every single, every new client and then every single campaign we did, we'd have to fill out this one pager that was a creative brief that was what's the objective? What is the key consumer insight that we know? And who is the target audience that we want to reach? What is the key consumer insight? And what does that mean for our messaging? And how will we deliver on that? So that has stuck with me till today, as well as the idea that I read about from Stan Rapp that was carried through in the whole direct marketing. People always think about it as just getting the name and building the list as being direct marketing, like someone... Formally, they would call a certain, you know, type a certain extension in when they, or call a phone number with a certain extension, and we would track it back to that extension. Of course, now online, so easy to right. track where people are coming from and what they're about. But so many, even advisors today, think of marketing as only the acquisition element, right? Only the, I need to get more people calling my firm. And the idea being that all of my marketing, when I talk about marketing, it means that front end creating awareness when marketing is that is the total relationship management from brand to acquisition, to activation, to retention, to loyalty, to brand ambassador, like loyalty that's so deep that they'll be an ambassador for your brand. And too often in it, advisor marketing, I think that's one of the biggest problems I see is that people go, okay, I just need to get more people coming to me. 
And they forget that marketing actually carries the whole way through, especially in a sales cycle like a financial plan or asset management. It's it's not just, oh, let me buy that product off the shelf. It's a long cycle. So you're going deeper and deeper into marketing world. How did you ultimately end out back in the finance side of the of the oh, industry? Yes, good point. Good question. Yeah. So obviously very passionate about marketing. I was very interested in it. And then I was living in New York City and I decided I wanted to move before I got too bitter. <laughs> I had been there a few, I had been there three some years. And so I started interviewing, I had visited California and then I decided I wanted to live in San Francisco. So I started interviewing out in California, got a job with an ad agency out there, out here where I live now. And they moved me across the country and I was there just a few months before a job opened up at Schwab. And I had interviewed with Schwab as well. I wanted to work in their in-house ad agency called CRS, which is Charles Schwab's initials. And I wanted to work there, but they didn't have any openings. So I took this other job and then kept networking and meeting with the people at Schwab and the job opened up. So I moved over there in just a few months and worked in the in-house ad agency for Charles Schwab. So that's where I started getting really into personal finance. Obviously from gray, I did that, but now I was within Charles Schwab. So everything was about that world. And you're in San Francisco, so like you, you are, you are right there at Schwab. Oh, at the HQ. headquarters. Yes, fascinating. And I never met Chuck Schwab, but I met Dave Patrick, who was, I think he at some point took over as CEO. But he and I were in yep. the elevator together once, and I was like, okay, this is, this is weird. Hello, <laughs> you know, it was very, you know, you kind of picture the corporate structure. It was a little more relaxed because we were in California, but you definitely felt the seriousness of you knew who was who and you know, kind of yes. the, gra- the gravitas of the situation yes yes but the fascinating thing about when i was there was that we did the roth ira had just become a thing right so i was working on the with the web end of the business so we were developing the website and developing tools for the advisors to use and developing tools for consumers too and we did this, we did the Roth IRA analyzer. So it was, you compared your traditional IRA with the Roth and which one made sense. Like you'd put in your information and then it would tell you okay. which one you should do. So that was, that was fascinating to me and gave me, you know, good insight into, you know, I had some interaction with the advisors and the advisory world. And then my other end of things was working on mutual funds and developing pieces for explaining the different mutual funds and how do we present them. So I'd work with that department as well. And I was really interested in the personal finance end of it and just the way it worked. So that was an illuminating well, but then I didn't I didn't go anywhere with it because then I left to join an internet startup that was because you you were in San Francisco I was in near San Silicon Francisco. Valley in the late nineteen nineties in the tech boom in marketing. Exactly. And honestly, I hate to say this because I, I respect greatly the Charles Schwab brand and the company and it was very kind and welcoming, but it was too corporate and too structured and I I always had this draw of being more entrepreneurial and it was, it was, I didn't want to be there <laughs> and it wasn't for lack of anything other than probably that it was 
not entrepreneurial enough. It was it was too defined, too specific, and that's why I went and start. I joined a startup there. It's called MyPoints.com now. It's an online loyalty program and still in business today, which is a good thing. It was a survivor. Wow. I know. I know. That was actually some additional incredible marketing training. And I guess now you're really into the first generation of purely online advertising for a purely online business. It was fantastic. Yes. So it was, and it was all about people would give an email list and then we would send this thing called bonus mail where you would get points every time you shopped at our vendors, right? Which everyone does now, but at the time it wasn't as, as prolific. And so we had all these partnerships with all these different companies to be able to do that. But here again, I worked in retention. I was director of member experience. So I defined what is the experience at once someone becomes a client, right? As they are engaging with the website, converting, and then what is that experience? And then how do we deepen their loyalty and segment them and figure out which offers make more sense for one group versus the other based on what they've been doing. And so I also was in charge of the brand and championing the brand and how do we make sure the brand is reinforced at all of the outlets of whatever we're doing, right? So again, and and I reinforced that because I had so much focus on retention and loyalty and creating the the client experience, when I did end up starting a financial planning firm, my RAA, I was worried because I was like, I actually, I'm not one of the acquisition people, right? The acquisition people were very outgoing. They were the sales types. They were the like, anything I can do to get a lead kind of people, very, you know, the the life of the party types who are out there like, then I'm going to be here and I'm going to make this connection and do that. And that really wasn't my deal, right? The coolest part probably was we would be buying up other companies. So we'd buy up can't remember the name now. Oh, this one called like Cybergold. We bought their company. And so then we had to integrate their database with our database. So it was all about how do we map the fields and match the data and what's the brand message and how do we change the logo or do we change it or how do we change the messaging? So it's really fascinating from the database end of things, as well as brand messaging and getting that across. Interesting. Yeah, it was, it was really fascinating work and probably it sort of bubbled up to be the most fascinating when we were then bought by United Airlines. So we were bought by United Airlines, which was just, when you think of marketing and loyalty programs, where else do you want to be, right? So, But an airline. Yeah. Air, airlines have long been the ultimate of building loyalty programs. And so then what led you ultimately away from like big firm marketing world that you know, you're you're going from like now you're at a mega national global brand, and then suddenly, not long thereafter, you're hanging a shingle. Yes, yeah. So that, then the internet bust happened, right? So my husband had had his own company that had done okay, and he was able, but he was he was able to exit it at I would say like 2002. And I was kind of like, all right, I'm ready for something new because I was getting antsy and he was wrapping up. So we took a year off (laughs) and traveled, which was outstanding. But during that year off, I was really thinking, what do I want to do? Because I I really want to do something different. And I wanted I decided I wanted to become a life coach. Right. Because I'd always been interested in whole life and people and helping people and 
Yeah, I know. This is a wine detail. I <laughs> It's part of our journeys. We become the sum of our experiences. I know. I'm like, you asked the question. It's a windy, it's a windy, windy trail. But ultimately, so I came back from the year off. Fortuitously, we were looking in the Craigslist for the jobs available because neither of us were employed. And I was like, okay, what do I want to do? And there was a marketing manager position available at the Coaches Training Institute, which is like one of the lead life coaching schools. And here in Northern California, we have like four of them here, you know? So I was like, how is that possible that there's a marketing manager job? And I had already taken like some of their coursework, just kind of weekend stuff on the side. And so I got that job. And at the same time, Mitchell, my husband, I had been working with a financial planner, a woman from American Express, and she was doing a financial plan for us. We had never done one before and she was doing it. And I, of course, was the geeky client who came in with my balance sheet already drawn up for her to show her because I just happened to find it interesting. You know, I'm practically going, okay, well, how do you figure out the retirement? You know, and I was fascinated by her. She was a CFP and I was like, this is fascinating. How did you get into this? And so I started asking her about it. And she told me about the program at Berkeley. And I was like, this could be a better application of, it'd be kind of marrying my personal finance interest, right? My, I've, I'd always been interested in personal finance with my wanting to be a life coach, but actually applying it to another type of position. So I dove into learning about that and took the survey course at UC Berkeley. I did that at night and then was like, yes, this is what I want to do. And to fast forward a bit, then life happened. I I had a baby, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Had a baby, had another job change before I started my shingle I because I was pregnant. And then that job was really kind of very tactical, executional. And I had kind of developed becoming more strategic. So anyway, I was like, I need to do this. So that's when I finally got to a point where I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I did my, I took my classes at night to be able to qualify to sit for the CFP exam, but I hadn't even done that. I just, I didn't even know how to do an RAA or anything. I was just like, I'm going to start my own financial planning company. And I had been studying it and learned from my advisor and some other people. And I eventually quit that job and just got an office and printed a business card, put my name on it and said financial planner. And, and the whole thing was people were like, well, did you work at another one? What did you, I'm like, no, I had, I was done working with for other people. Like I hated asking if I had, if I could take a vacation, I hated saying I need an hour off so I can go to the dentist. I didn't like having to do things in a certain way at a certain time for certain people. And I was fed up with it. And I knew I wanted to go and help people directly. So I set up V2V Financial Planning and hung my shingle. So like, well, help me understand is what was the, what was the plan? What was the approach as you're saying, like, I'm, I'm going to come and start an advisory firm, but you've got all of this deep focused marketing background of finding people and connecting with them and activating them and retaining them and building loyalty like, I mean, I can certainly see the parallels to trying to get clients and market them, bring them in and then make them become clients and stick with you for the long run. Like certainly the, you know, the parallels are there. We are a relationship driven business with a lot of relationship oriented marketing, mm-hmm. but you also had no, no background, no industry 
experience, at least not advisor industry side experience. So like, what was the plan? Like, what was the launch? What did you do? Well, yeah. So essentially, and it's so interesting because now with your whole XYPN, all this, it's so thoughtful and people have the resources and they can fit. I had no reason. I didn't have any idea what I was doing, frankly. I just knew I had, I knew how to write a financial plan. I knew what I was interested in. And I thought about it when I went to, I said, I essentially said, I'm going to set up a financial planning firm that's really focused, that's really structured like a coaching firm. And the deliverable is a financial plan and then essentially support for implementing that in terms of coaching and and having sort of a membership-based program after someone did the financial plan with me. And that was that going to specifically be part of the the fee model and the structure as well. Like I'm going to charge upfront for a plan and then charge on an ongoing basis. Charge an ongoing membership fee or subscription basis as you talk about it today. But so that, I mean, I never ever had interest in managing money. That was never what I wanted to do. I didn't want that responsibility. I didn't find the interesting part to me was saying, what is what are the possibilities in someone's life what are they afraid to go after? What are they afraid to do? What is it that they feel is, that's a dream of theirs that they want to feel empowered to do? And how can they help, how can their money help them get there, right? So how can they align their finances with their dreams? Which many, many, many people, right, in our industry, especially in the individual space, in the independent space, have that motivation to help people around the whole life, you know, the holistic look. So this was my life coach thing coming back in, right? So right, saying, right. okay, but now I can tangibly give them a way to do that. I can help them understand their money. I can give them a plan. I can show them the impact of different choices and I can support them along the way and help them as they're, as they're making these adjustments. And I also knew that I wanted to help people who were like me. And at the time, I was in my 30s with my first child. And frankly, that shock of switching from being a partner and to becoming a parent was devastating to me, overwhelming, like many people. And I just felt, wow, I really want to help you know, people like me with their money. So feeling just all the pain and dynamics of from working career on your own to now I'm a mother as well and taking time out and maternity leaves and going back and balancing work and young children and just all of that, all of the stuff that went with that. There was an underlying buzz that I, again, maybe didn't see at the time, but I saw as I started working with people, which was helping people who felt like there was something else or different they wanted to do, like start a business or have an entrepreneurial life because I, I was very drawn to being an entrepreneur and and being in charge of my own future and and running my own business. So I wanted to enable people to make that shift. So I kind of looked at the overlay of I mean it was definitely and I find when people had a baby, you know, they they are pressed with the question of should I go back to work? Right. Should I continue my career? And so when I drilled down, it was like, well, let's back up and say, when I looked and said, okay, I'm going to have this firm. The first question I said to myself, like, who's it for? Who am I trying to attract in? What is my target audience? I'm like, I honestly do not know how people start RIAs and don't know who their audience is. I'm like, well, how is it that you know what to do with your time every day to get the word out about yourself if you don't know who you're trying to attract in? It blew my mind from the beginning that you wouldn't think what's your niche. 
So who do you, who do that for? So talk about that a little bit more, because I'm sure now as as you've lived into the industry in the nearly 15 years since you made this transition, you know that like almost no one actually starts out of the gate saying like who's my niche target audience. Either we start generalists and stay generalist, or we start generalists. It's like, yeah, maybe when I get big, I'll like go get more focused later. But right now, I just have to work with anybody I can possibly talk to. Right. Now, that was never, from my, the way I looked at it, I just said, okay, I'm starting a company. I want to do financial plans. Okay, hold on. Let me think about, immediately, I thought, well, what's my marketing plan? And you cannot do a marketing plan if you don't know who you want to attract in, right? So- and then I was like, well, how do you name it? You got to name the company. So is it, you know, related to the business and what's the look and feel and how's it going to work? And none of those things I'm dumbfounded to this day where people go, okay, which marketing should I do? I'm like, I don't know. Who do we want to attract in? You know? So I, to me, it was the way that you look at a business is to then say, okay, I'm setting up the, whatever all the mechanics setting up the business, but then, all right, now I need to get people in the door. What do I have to do? First, I have to name who that is. So for me, it was new and expectant parents and families with young children. So either someone who had just found out that, you know, they were planning to get pregnant up to they had at least one child under the age of five at home. So that was the new parent niche, right? Over time, it's I started drilling down to be, you know, when I when I set my profile of who I wanted to go after, I was like, well, it's, it's probably female. It's probably the mom. And then, you know, I'd look and say, okay, well, I want. I could go all over the Bay Area or all over the country, but I'll focus on San Francisco because I'm already connected to all of the outlets here, right? And then I honed in on things like, what am I most interested in? I'm most interested in that trade-off of, should I go back to work or should I stay home? Because these are highly a lot of highly educated women here who put their career on hold or don't know what they're going to do. And frankly, I had gone that through that too. And so I, I kind of had the the avatar, if you will, of who I wanted to attract in. And I started thinking about, well, what are the issues they have to face? And so I went through each element of the financial plan and said, okay, income and expense planning. What are the general questions, fears, and aspirations people have? Okay. You know, estate planning, investment management, all the different parts of a plan. And I put together a one pager that says, hey, I can do a financial plan for you. And this, these are the questions it will answer. And it had I don't know, 40 questions on there of like each part of the plan and what are the what are the fears and aspirational questions that people have around that. The whole idea being like the one pager you put together and the questions that you put on there that you said you'll answer, like this isn't just we do retirement planning and estate planning and investment management and sort of all those broad-based category labels that we have out there. This was now getting really specific to your new and expectant mothers with young children trying to figure out whether they're going to go back to work or not. Exactly. Exactly. And so I would say when I started, you know, of course the message was to the couple as a whole, but the type of questions I put in there were a balance of kind of left and right brain. Some were, you know, more like, do we need a trust? What should we be thinking about for a will? Like, how do I pick a guardian for my child? And then other ones might be like, how can we take a vacation that doesn't involve visiting parents? Can we afford for me to stay home? Or, you know, what would it cost for me to back to work? All those different things. But interestingly, like on the sort of acquisition side of things, I mean, on the branding side, I said, okay, I got to name my firm. And I named it V2V Financial Planning because I didn't want to name it after myself because... 
that, you know, you don't want to attach to the individual, which many people do. But nonetheless, I, I created a name and the name is essentially, it was capital V-I-T-A, which is Italian for life, and then capital V-I-E, which is French for life. And so I kept the two capital V's and they word went together because it was about like two lives coming together, two independent lives coming together mm. to form a family. And then I used the foreign names as a, an inspiration. A lot of the people that I work with are in the Bay Area, you know, the couples who are dual income working, who are getting into that phase of having babies are very into travel and world exploration and all those things. So I, that's why I used the foreign words as sort of an element of dream and aspiration and places we like to visit and encourage. So that was my name. I came with it and then had a logo created and all those different things. But along the way, I didn't do all that first. I, I think I started my my entity name is Broderick Street Partners, LLC. And I think my first client was signed on under that brand because I hadn't come up with a name yet. But I was like, well, I got to get out there and start getting some business. So I'll just use this name for now. And I didn't even have a website yet. So so help us understand more of just how you got going. I mean, you said like you're you're not a get out there and and sell activator work the streets type. You're launching from scratch. You've got this particular group you want to go after, but you have to go after them and you're And you have to ultimately get them to come, right? Yeah. What did you do? Like how did you actually get people to start coming to you if you didn't want to be the type that goes out to them. Right, exactly. So I never thought of myself as a salesperson. I've only ever thought of myself as a marketing person. And and the difference between a salesperson and a marketing person is is usually quite stark in that, you know, a salesperson will just go out and do stuff. And then a marketing person plans everything out. So I sat down and I created my marketing plan. And then I said, okay, of course I focused first on the lead to client part. Like I built out my welcome kit so that I'd have something to send. I had that going while I also concurrently said, where are all the places where I can find people and I need to get in front of them. So like I said, I ran print ads in every newsletter for all of the mom's newsletters in the area. So across the city, there's a a number of different groups. So I ran ads for every issue over like a year at least, more than a year, but I did that. Just like, what is that cost? What does that take? It wasn't much at all. It was hundreds of dollars for like the year, you know, a full page ad or a half page ad, but it was something that every mother looked at. Like, I mean, these are small moms newsletters. This is like, you know, they just want to sell an ad so someone can cover the printing cost to mail it to all the other moms kind of thing. But they were a hundred percent on target. So a hundred percent on target where I'm putting my name out there and showing a woman holding a baby kind of looking distressed around like, huh, this is what it's like to be a mom. You know, like what about the rest of things? You know, I would say I did get calls off of that. I mean, I'd have the prompt for a free consultation. Over time, I learned that the better call to action was a lower hurdle, such as come to my event. I'll be hosting an event on this day and sign up for the workshop. You know, and so I started switching from the higher hurdle of schedule a consultation, which is a big leap unless someone's exactly on point. But it, it still had the dual benefit of brand awareness, right? Creating awareness to being like, join me for my 
workshop with a state planning attorney, so-and-so, where we'll be talking about these new parent issues, boom, boom, boom. And that worked really well. But I think it also makes just an interesting point that when you get this level of specificity up front in who you're going after, you get to look in interesting places to find them that most people won't necessarily go, which is what got you down to like, I'm plastering my name in all the mom's newsletters around San Francisco, and I'm actually getting great brand awareness and great ads directly in front of the people that I want to work with. And, you know, it's costing me a few hundred bucks a year for being, for getting ad exposure all year because I'm so targeted. No one else is there. No one else is advertising there. You're, I guess, not only not competing with other advisors, like, not competing with much of anyone at all because they're just trying to sell an ad for a few hundred bucks. Yeah, it's mostly like baby services, you know, like night nurses or make your, you know, food. Now I think it's gotten way, way different. Like I started, I think it's a whole different world there now, but still the opportunity exists. It's just different, right? You might They might right. have a blog or an online thing. So, and then I would contribute articles too. So I would write articles and send them to the to the newsletter and say, hey, can you publishes because again blogs online not as popular at the time however over over time it started to be there started to be more of that you know i even did some some banner ads but i learned and again banner ads i wouldn't do today but banner ads then i did and it would be the banner ad for an event will work or a, a free download a banner ad for a consultation no you know so and today, I would still say that, like, put the lowest hurdle offer out there you can put out there. But so, I mean, I gained traction. I did a lot of workshops, a lot of partnering with other professionals. This estate planning attorney and I teamed up and we we were strategic partners. Like, it wasn't just, hey, let's do one workshop together. We'd look at the whole year and map it out and be like, here, let's do it, you know, this time, this time, this time. We got lists. We sent postcards. We made sure we were getting in the speaking circuit at the mom's group, all of the sort of offline things you would do there. And then I also had on my website, I had a lead magnet and I also had an online sign up for a consultation. So people would submit and send in, I'd get an email and then I'd have a process of following up with them. And if they didn't respond, I'd just follow up two more times and then put them on the email list. And then I sent out regular emails with you know, stories and reflections and articles and things like that over time. And it was really about identifying where are the, where are the new parents and getting myself out there. And so as you dug into this kind of narrow, but deep marketing strategy, like how did it go? I mean, how long did it take you to, to, to get some traction and get some clients to get some revenue going? Well, once I got that first person in and kind of proved to myself that, hey, I actually can sell something <laughs> and got some more confidence behind that, then it started picking up pretty quickly from there just because I was starting, some of the dominoes were falling of me having put myself out there. You know, I'd add a few more clients, but I was able to get the planning revenue. And again, this was all just fee for plan plus then ongoing membership, as I called it. Just under 200000 in less than three years, which was, I thought, a pretty good go for me being by myself. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a lot of advisory firms that have been going 
10 plus years don't necessarily do yeah. $200,000 of planning fees. You know, Maybe we get there because we're accumulating some some assets and getting some rollovers. And at some point it starts recurring and building, but like straight planning fees, that's a big number from scratch in three years with no background to it. Actually, I'm going to amend because I said by myself, but I did start adding, I had another advisor who started working for me, I want to say two years in, three years in, no, 2008. Because you just like another person to help you marketing a client and grow or another person that like handle all these clients because you're actually getting clients in the new. So at first she was supporting me writing plans. So as I was getting people coming in, she did the back. She was newer to the industry. She wanted to get in. I said, I need help. I need help with the plan writing. So once you learn how to do the plans, then we can, you know, deepen that out. And so after, you know, she was great. She did the plans behind the scene for me part-time. She was also a, a mother with a, she also was a stay-at-home mom slash former financial person who was looking to transition into the industry. So she worked behind the scenes for a while and then she became a revenue generator. Like she wanted to get her own clients in. So we ended up structuring a piece where it was like, okay, if I originate the lead and you do the plan, you get X percent of the fee. And then if you originate the lead and handle the relationship, you just pay me a portion of the fee for using the brand and the infrastructure and all of those things. So that's when I was able to scale up to, to the higher numbers. So but on my own, it was probably a little over 100. When she was there, that was just incremental revenue for me. Well, and, and I guess starts to speak as well to what happens like when you when you get focused into something so specific, like you went out attracting other people who also care about that thing and want to be part of it, right? You didn't, yeah. you didn't get any old advisor to, to join you and try to help you build the business and, and bring in clients in this area. Like you got one that is directly in the niche you're serving, who cared about what you're doing right. because you're directly in that space and connecting to her life and what she was dealing with as well. Right. right. In fact, she contacted me when I was on maternity leave with my second child, which I, I had my second child during while I had the firm. And I took a whole like six weeks off because once I had the second time around, I was like, oh, I want to get back to work. You know, and I had I remember having the, my little baby with me and she had contacted me. And I believe probably off of one of the Marin Mothers groups that I had been advertising in and participating in. And she was like, I want to get into the field. And I was like, well, great. I need some help. So for a while, she just kind of interned, right? And then we formalized it so that once she got really good at it, she was like, I'm going to, you know, she'd start bringing in some clients. I'm like, great. And then we set it up so that she could essentially benefit financially from bringing in the clients. That was really good for a long time. She was fantastic at work. She has her own firm now, and she she had her CFP, and she ended up starting her own firm taking some of these clients with her, which was totally welcome because I was then getting ready to move to Sydney. So there's a lot of time in there, but she did end up going and doing her own thing and, and still thriving today, which is great. So, you know, it was a key piece because I also added another advisor in there who was also a mother with this, who was wanting to return to the workforce and get her CFP and she worked as well for me and she happened to be down in Palo Alto. So she, or Menlo Park. So she was in the Southern Bay area. And then first person was in Marin. 
the firm keeps building and expanding its geographic footprint in focusing into its niche of who it's serving because all these different people now are getting attracted in like, oh, you do the thing I, I care about and I'm interested in. I want to be part of that as well. Yes, because now I'm like, great. Now I have an office, air quotes, down in Palo Alto and Menlo Park because she right. would, you know, she would meet with people down there. And so it was really interesting how it grew and, and developed kind of while that was going on from 2006 to that. I ended up having the firm, I think, up through the end of maybe 2020. 13, 14 was probably the last time I talked to clients. But from the point of 2010 onward, I started just dabbling in training advisors, mainly because someone called me from the Journal of Financial Planning and asked me about how do I, how did I pick my niche? And I started talking about it, talking about marketing and picking a niche and all this. And I was so enthusiastic and so excited to talk to this woman I talked to her for like mm-hmm. an hour and I was so energized by it. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Cause I, I couldn't run away fast enough from the marketing world. Cause I, I was like, no, I need to impact people's lives. I need to change, change the world in this way. And I was stunned by how excited I was talking about marketing. And then I eventually decided I had enough advisors calling me then and asking me about how I pick my niche. What do I do? What should they do for marketing that I, put together a six-week teleseminar, a teleclass on how to pick a niche. It was called Go Small to Go Big. And it was six one-hour sessions or something where you signed up, you took the class. I charged a small amount. We did the sessions. I recorded them. At the end, I pitched, hey, if you are interested, we can do some one-on-one coaching. And some people signed up. So I did some one-on-one coaching with advisors. on the side. And then I had those recordings. So I was like, well, I should probably package them up because I bet other advisors would pay for this. Right. So I created a product and sold it as, you know, I had a landing page and people signed up for the six week course. And then they were prompted to sign up for coaching. And so that was kind of happening in the background. And and I would kind of ebb and flow. I'd kind of do some of that work and then get be like, no, I'm too busy with financial planning. I can't do this. It's taking up too much time, you know. But it was in the background happening. Okay. And so you just mentioned some point there, like, then there's a, I went to Sydney? Yes. And the, the timeline's a little murky. But yeah, fast forward, I had gotten more into uh, essentially doing more and more training with advisors. The, I was overlapping between my RIA and the training of advisors and sort of winding down doing RIA work because I was getting more business on the other side. And I was thinking, I can't do both. I've got to pick one. It was killing me. I was working like around the clock trying to juggle two things. And I was like, all right, I'm going to consciously choose to shift from the RIA to doing training for advisors. And I had developed in the meantime, another video class that advisors could take. And so I was putting these things together. Meanwhile, in the parallel path in my personal life, my husband and I had set a goal. I don't even know exactly when, but a number of years prior that we wanted to live abroad with our kids before they went to high school. So this was a kind of a life, a life goal that we wanted to realize before our kids were going to high school and they were starting to get, that meant they had to be back here from late middle school. Right. So they were in elementary okay. school and we were like, okay. And we, 
we were kind of looking looking many years ahead, but saying in the background we were having these discussions of where would we go, what would we do, and I was like, well, we should probably you know we should probably go to an English speaking area where. And I was like, for my business because I was doing way more training then, and I knew I was switching into full time training. I was like, I want to go somewhere where they speak English and they have a financial planning profession, so I have a chance to potentially do my consulting there. So we looked at, and my husband concurrently wanted was in fintech marketing. So he runs marketing departments for fintech companies. So he also is in the marketing space. He had been sort of pursuing job leads in the fintech arena. And we both had far more interest in going to Australia than, say, England. (laughs) I was going to say, like, you're kind of getting in Australia and, and the UK as some primary areas. And then... You know, we're just more drawn to like the South Pacific and we were more interested in that area. And my husband always wanted to live there. And I'd only been once. I'm like, sounds good to me. You know, I want to live abroad. And then he he identified a company down there that was in early stages. And he talked to, he nurtured that relationship for over a year till they got their funding and got going. And then they offered him a job there and moved our family there. So everyone always goes, oh, did you move for work? And I go, no, we didn't move to Sydney for work. We moved for life. It was a choice. Mm -hmm. It was something we designed. And of course, we worked with our financial advisor to map it out and figure it out. And Mitchell got this job. I started looking at what are the organizations down there? What's the landscape? What do I need to know about the financial planning world down there? And how am I moving, making sure the work I'm doing is doable? You know, I was moving a lot to online platforms and one, you know, coaching and not needing to be in person. Because the idea was that you were going to find Australian advisors to do this, or because you specifically wanted to make a platform so that you could stay connected to U.S. advisors while you were in Australia. So my belief was, I was like, one, I'm going to get things online. So I had built out some of these products, the online training programs. I did do a one-on-one coaching. And so I had shifted away from anything in person to doing everything online because I, I wanted to maintain the U.S. business because I had gotten to a really nice point and I had been doing a fair amount of speaking leading up to that and build up a good list of people and had gotten a lot of traction on the on the consulting side. And then I also wanted some, something I could integrate physically, like in, in the world where I lived in my community. Right. So I was hoping to get some traction down in Sydney as well, which unfortunately started a little bit and then petered out over a little bit of time, given the, the way that the financial planning industry is there. So. Well, and I know the, unfortunate timing for when you went there. You know, you, you went there in the middle of their regulatory version of upheaval. You know, uh, Australia had of had their version of our Department of Labor fiduciary rule come through their industry, except their version was way more dramatic in its changes than mm-hmm. anything that DOL fiduciary had proposed here. So it was uh, unfortunate timing, I guess, for the level of disruption that just happened to be ripping through Australia right when you were there. Right, right. I mean, I was looking for, like, I went to the Financial Planning Association Australia, you know, meetings, and I was working. I actually got a a desk in a fintech incubator 
thanks to my husband's connections there and was able to work among a ton of fintech companies. So that was interesting and a way for me to socialize and interact. And I happened to have my desk next to another, to a financial advisor who was had just started off on his own and was trying to get going. So I was do I was able to give him work with him a bit. I did have a lot of the fintech companies there wanting to talk to me about marketing, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a direct, exactly what I wanted to do. And then in the financial planning world there, it's very expensive. And I think, you know, to run your own RAA there, there's a lot of fees, it costs a lot of money. So the thought of even investing, you know, an extra dollar in marketing is, you know, it, it was a, huge, huge obstacle to overcome and trying to show that value. And and they're also, I'd say many, they're more in the old school of let's meet for coffee and have a long lunch and decide if maybe possibly you want to be my client. That's their marketing, right? So it's, it's kind of years behind where we were. So it's, it was changing, but the sheer expense of running an RA there didn't free up much cash to hire a marketing consultant. So... So you ended up, I guess, staying more connected to building your U.S. marketing coaching business as you were going. Exactly. And that was going fine. I mean, I had good leads coming. I had people coming. But the the issue, we lived in Sydney for two and a half years, and I loved it. We loved it. We loved the lifestyle. We liked. We lived out by the beach. We commuted into the city with our kids. The kids went to school in the city. It was a nice balance of leisure and, and, you know, international city life. It, it was, you know, fun. Sydney's very good at that. Yeah. It's, oh, I loved it. I, I can't even repeat that here. I'm trying to repeat that and I can't get that, but all of the personal things, right. And family things, very strong and really, really rich and inviting, but professionally, I think it was one of the lowest points in my professional career. And it started so strong because I got there and then I was in this incubator and people wanted to talk to me. But then when I started realizing that, one, there was no business to be had in the local market. And then two, you know, you hear how awesome it is to be remote and work from anywhere. And that's certainly a theme of this year, right? Where people are like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, particularly when you're forced. (laughs) It is amazing. It is amazing except when you're an ocean away and it's 7,500 miles and half the year, your workday doesn't overlap with the majority of the United States. And you're trying to think, how can I have a call with someone in Chicago at a time that works for me that isn't late at night or early in the morning? And the lifestyle burden was tough. Yeah. There's remote work and then there's literally other side of the world work. Exactly. And if you're doing it a little bit or occasionally, but every day... When especially down there, they have sort of a different structure and there wasn't, in the U.S., we had childcare, so I would work a normal day and, you know, we'd have after-school childcare options and all that. They didn't really do that as much down there. And so I would be getting, dropping them off at school and then going to work and then being like, okay, three o'clock, I got to pick them up. And then, right. you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do, which on a parent's side of things was super fun, but then it, it narrowed my window even more. And, you know, I, I just wasn't looking for a lifestyle where I had to work at 11 or 12 at night. And I, and I did it some because while I was there, I ran my implement now online conference. I did that three years in a row and that happened while I was there. So I would get up at five in the morning and go into the city and get my coffee and do the recording. And I would stay up late at night to try to get one on the back end. But it was not something that was a lifestyle that I was willing to do, especially having two young kids. 
And by this time, V2V, the planning firm is just entirely wound out of the out of the picture. Yeah. Any clients I had either transitioned to the other advisor or we wrapped up the engagement. So I didn't really have an exit strategy there. As much as just my other advisor who had worked with me, she, you know, some of those clients were her relationships. So she took right. she took them and others because it was a, you know planning only engagement, you know, at some point we were, we had wrapped up and then some people I referred on to other people. So that was totally wrapped up by the time I left. So RAA closed and the overlap of like 2012, 13, 14, I didn't go to Sydney till 2015. I mean, I had built up a nice consulting and coaching business by that point, but when you went abroad and, you know, any new client coming on, it's, it, it just started becoming a logistical nightmare. Right. And to try to balance and enjoy the whole reason you went there was to experience the culture and participate and engage and be part of, you know, living there. It's like you don't want to be burning both ends of the candle the whole time, too. But you got, I guess, stuck in that squeeze of, okay, it turns out the local Australian business opportunity is not as strong as anticipated because of their regulatory environment. I can still keep building my U.S. business, but I'm 14 hours off. Certain times a year, it's even different because there's another two hours to get added in there somewhere. But yes, it was upside down. I mean, and that was defeating. It really was because because I had gotten to a really, I think I had just presented at the FPA NorCal in May and we moved in July that year. And I was like literally on a, on a high note, right? Like I had built up and I had done this and I had presentation and people calling me and right. then I move and I'm like, that's okay. And I get there and I'm connecting and meeting people. And it was about a year in till I was like, wait a minute, what happened here? How long were you there? We were there two and a half years. After I started realizing the show, I was like, my goal now is just to maintain my my brand awareness, right? So I kept contributing articles, kept contributing content, showed up on webinars, held webinars. I was like, I will just keep building my list and nurturing my list as best I can more to keep up. Even though I can't do much consulting and work with them because it's the other side of the world and the time zones never work. Yeah. And, and it was, again, a choice. I was like, I'm just not it was not something I was willing to put in on that, but I was like, but knowing I'm going back to the U.S., I'm going to keep building. I'm going to keep building the brand. I'm going to keep my awareness. I'm going to, I'm going to have people think I'm still here in the U.S. because I'm sharing content enough and I'm getting out and showing up in all of the places that I can write and contribute to or do a podcast, even a podcast or a webinar from the comfort of Sydney. So that became my new goal, which actually became more inspiring to be like, when we got closer to knowing when we were going to come back, then I started building the re-entry strategy, which was far more exciting and engaging. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, just because I was like, all right, I, I sort of accepted the fate as it was, even though it was, it was depressing really, because you're like, I want to not only contribute to the family household, but I had gotten to such a good point and then it plateaued slash fell down, you know, and you're right. like, oh God, am I going to be able to, to connect back in? I was going to say like, do you, do you start worrying? Like, am I going to be able to restart this when I get back? I was like, what if everyone forgot, me? you know, despite all my work and everything, I'm like, I haven't been around, you know, I don't, 
I haven't been there. I haven't been at the conferences. I haven't seen anyone, you know, and sure, sitting in a COVID year, you're like, so what? That's how we all were, but not when everyone yeah. else was doing it all, all year right. long. And then I'm coming in going, hello, can I come? You hey, know, can I I'm, pay attention I'm to me. Back. Hello. Oh, you were gone. What? You know, it's kind of like, it was odd on, on many levels and definitely the, you know, that imposter syndrome of like, oh, who am I? What am I trying to prove? What am I doing? What's this all about? Do I know what I'm talking about? Are people going to believe me? Like all of that came flooding back, like from when way back when of like, look what you did now, what, you know, plus you're, you're dealing with the fact that, you know, there were many things we liked down there and we had to readjust to being back here and couldn't get the kids back in school. We had to get school for the kids and all the different pieces and it was like oh, right okay this isn't even fun getting reacclimated. no it's- no no yeah you should allow at least six months to a year for that but the, the, you know it, it was a very very cool life experience and we we i mean a hundred times would do it over again upon reflection i i would have probably looked at structuring business in a different way or i don't know exactly how i would have done that but it is something to consider if you want to go literally to the other side of the world and run a business that's based in the U.S. So, It is far. Just bear in mind, it is far. It's far, yes. So, so as you looked at then coming back and getting going again, what, like, what was the plan? What were you envisioning coming back into or back to do? The exciting piece there was I was like, all right, I can create whatever I want now, you know, not that you can't every day, right? We can all wake up any day and say, you know what, I can create something new. But I did a lot of work, soul searching on my, you know, what do I care about and what's important to me? The one thing I knew I wanted to do, and probably because I had been so remote for so long, and, and, and we may see this coming out of the COVID too, which is I wanted to work in person with people, so I I wanted to have the opportunity to be around people. So I did get an, a WeWork space when I came back here so that I literally had a place to go and got out of my home. I don't have it anymore, but I, I got that. And then when I first came back, I just started reaching out either through LinkedIn or just directly to every advisor I knew in the Bay Area, pretty much saying, hello, I've I've been away. I'm back. Can you meet for coffee? And I just took a month of just meeting with advisors and getting the lay of the land again of like, what's been going on? How's your, you know, some of them I knew and some of them I didn't know at all. I just put out there, Hey, I've been away. I've come back. And so I was meeting with people, you know, a number of advisors every week just to say, okay, let me get, let me reconnect with humans I want to talk to people like I want to be face to face with someone. So that was extremely helpful and fulfilling. And I met a lot of really amazing advisors and then reconnected with a bunch that were more than willing to help me in any way, which was, you know, just one of the things I like about our industry. So you didn't necessarily have yet like the master plan of now that I'm coming back to the U.S., here's what I'm going to build the idea was like, I'm going to come back and talk to advisors and figure out like, okay, what do I want to build and create now? Exactly. Exactly. And knowing I had like the baseline of the website, the blog, the emails and things I was doing anyway, but this was more of, that was treading water, right? So 
it was like, well, what am I going to offer these people? I guess the one thing I did do, which isn't even small, is that I, I did launch a new training program that was a webinar-based program, but for only a handful of advisors, only had five or six advisors in it. And it was an intensive over eight weeks. And I intentionally set that up. I actually mailed out a I did a direct mail package out to my entire list that I had. I had an assistant here in the U.S. who coordinated it for me and mailed everything from here. And I sent it out and I did an invitation to have a call with me. And I hired a firm to follow up with everyone and schedule calls. And then I held a course when I first got back that was video and a small class because I wanted it to be very focused on established advisors who were stuck on a plateau, who wanted to get to that next level, who needed marketing help. And the whole thing was positioned around that. And so I put together this program, you know, I had the framework and then every week I'd create the content for it again, to get myself back in a conversation and helping people right from the start. So I was doing that every week and then meeting with advisors for coffee just networking and getting out again, just to get a lay of the land, get my momentum back. And then from there, I started seeing what I wanted to do, which was I want to help individual advisors and I won't say small firms, but firms that need marketing help where I can come in and have a meaningful difference in the work that they're doing. So I can come in and have an impact on their business. So the outsourced CMO emerged. It took a little while to formulate and get together, but Mm. now it has come together. So So tell us a little more just about, you know, where where you ended out, like what, what does the, the marketing consulting business look like at this point? So it's, it's extremely simple from a marketing and sales point of view. I have two options. I work either one-on-one with solo advisors or individuals within a larger firm who want to focus on their own marketing. And I work with firms who need strategic marketing help who don't have the resource on hand. So REAs that generally fall in what I think you call the dangerous middle, but the sort of 100 million under management up to about a billion, maybe a little more than that, firms that are in a position where they need marketing help, they've gotten to a certain point, but they can't bring in a full-time person. So they hire me as a part-time CMO and I come in and set and drive their marketing strategy and help train their team and help them figure out what resources they need, if any, or freelance or, or other, and help them with their marketing success on that end. So it's two offerings. I do one-on-one coaching that's for all of the solo advisors who who are doing it themselves, who are out there marketing, but need to know how to prioritize, where should they focus, and to have someone, frankly, helping keep them accountable. Where to prioritize, focus, and accountability partner. Yes, exactly. But, but with all the, the marketing background you have of literally having gone through the process of building this. I call it marketing consulting and coaching because I was like, a coach would really sort of say, what do you want to do and guide you and direct you from what you say? But I also marry in the 
here's what you need to do. Here is our, like, we work out together. What is the plan? What are you going to do? And we break right. it down. And, and I, of course, bring in all the best practices of where to go. I mean, they're essentially coming to me for the expertise and the accountability. And is that mostly, like, is that one-time consulting kind of stuff or you work with advisors ongoing? It's ongoing. So the way it works is I work with up to 12 advisors at a time in that arena. So I'll do six. I do it only on Tuesdays and it's six one week, six the next week. And so I sit down and my day, I look at my calendar and I go, okay, I've got these six 45 minute coaching calls and they're generally back to back without a doubt. Every Monday night I go, Oh my God, how am I going to get through that tomorrow? I wake up Tuesday, a little overwhelmed. I start the day. And then by the end of the day, I'm like running a hundred miles an hour totally energized, loving life, being like, it is so fun to help all these advisors. So I designed it because I know there's so many advisors out there who are running their own practice. You know, I've been there, but I've targeted it into people who are, you know, it's not usually, it, there's an exception here, that, but it's advisors who have been in business a while, they've hit a plateau, they've tried some different marketing, and they don't know what to do next, right? Or they, they want either they, they are stuck and they don't know what to do next, or they want to achieve a higher level. And they're saying, how do I go from where I am today to that next level? Which when you're doing it as a, as a solo has all, all sorts of unique dynamics and challenges around it, just because of the real world constraints that we have when we're, when we're on our own. Exactly. And so a lot of it is, again, prioritization is probably the biggest thing, like focus, and then having them commit and focus to a specific, you know, path or initiative or what's next and helping them be okay with putting stuff on the back burner, right? I'm like, all right, this, we're going to go in and focus hundred percent on this area, you know, and a lot of times the conversation starts with clarity on target market, right? So a lot of people still, you know, coming in, not knowing who that is, who they want to work with and, and, understanding that. So we really dive in. And, and the good thing about working with established advisors now, because I've done work with ton, so many advisors just starting up, but the established advisor, we can go back, we can look at who you've worked with and say, who are the people you just absolutely love getting on the phone with or talking to? You know, Who are the ones who are right. paying you the most? And we look at all these different factors and get that overlay of so for all those who don't know what their niche is or should be, or I've got too many clients to pick one now, so what do I do? Like helping those types of firms figure out how to actually get more targeted to get to the next level. Exactly. Because, you know, ultimately, like I said in the very beginning, to know how to market, you have to know who you want to bring in. So as I tell them, I was like, this doesn't limit who you work with. You can work with whomever you want to work with. This is giving us focus to our marketing so we know how to direct our marketing message so that we can stand out from the crowd of 300,000 other advisors out there. And we can say, hey, for those of you who fit this particular profile, who need have this particular need and stay up at night worrying about these particular things, I can help you. I like that framing that this isn't meant to limit who you work with. It just focuses your marketing messaging so that you've got at least one one person or group out there you can be super compelling to attract. And then perhaps if it works really well, you'll get a whole bunch of those. But. Exactly, exactly. 
And we know that people refer people like themselves. So if we hone in on what I call the high value hyper target, so someone who not only is someone you enjoy working with and fits the profile, but they also pay you what you want to earn because they appreciate the value of your service, then the more you focus your marketing on attracting those types in, the more the referrals and all that will, you know, will snowball of being the same kind of people. So it just helps you be able to have impact because we know the marketing today, content marketing, all that takes impact over time, right? So, right, yeah, it's it's a lot different, but that that's one. So then that's my Tuesday offering, and then the rest of my time is spent working with RAAs who are, you know, who are really looking for that marketing plan and kind of the the sort of if I really had to narrow in on the absolute ideal, it's kind of the firm that's around seven or eight hundred thousand. 800 million under management. They've had a founder that maybe founded the firm way back in the early days of independent independent RAAs. So that founder is retiring. The G2 is coming up and the, they're like 45, 50 years old. And they're saying, you know what? I, I'm not the rainmaker like he was. How now do I use all of the marketing that's available to me in the new way and knowing that consumers aren't the same as they were. They're not taking cold calls from people. They're not receiving marketing in the same way or sales in the same way. What do we do to continue the growth or, or sustainability of this firm? And so that's who I, I love working with those people, with that type of firm. So having lived this journey now, what surprised you the most about just what it takes to market and build an advisory firm. The most surprising thing was that advisors don't focus on a on a target audience. So that, without a doubt, was the most surprising thing. I think for me, as a, as an advisor, learning was getting accustomed to the sales cycle, the slow acceptance of of the sale. So if someone indicates interest, it could be six months six years before they reach out to you. you right. know? That I think was one of the most surprising things to me when I got into the industry of that I had to acclimate to and adjust to and realize it wasn't personal, right? Very different than the direct marketing world of like, I sent them the mailer and within two weeks, we're pretty much going to know all of our results. Yeah, exactly. To me, I, it took a, an adjustment and I also had to learn not to take it personally. Like, Oh, someone called me and they were so interested. And now I'm calling them, you know, I'm calling them back and they seem to drop off the face of the earth. What happened? That really depressed me in the beginning. Like I I could get pretty beaten up about that because I was like, see, I knew I didn't know how to sell. I did something totally wrong and and I would get on my case. But that surprised me a lot. And so I had to shift and go, okay, great. Well, then we need to make sure that we have this marketing system in place so that we have the nurture and the touch points all mapped out and process, process developed so that I'm not getting caught up in it, you know, that I'm following the system and that's it. But yes, I am still to this day surprised, even to look, talking to my advisors that I work with saying, huh, we haven't heard back from that. That's, that's amazing. Keep the follow-up going. You know, like kind of like, I know, I know it's hard and you really thought they were signing on, but you have no idea what else is happening in their life. And Mm. you can't make any assumptions. This isn't the thing that someone goes, yes, I can't wait to run over and do that. You know, it's (laughs) like they, they usually have to do it because something's occurred in their life and we just want to make sure we're there to help them and stay in front of them. So you have to detach. And I, I think it's hard to learn that. I think that's one of the most challenging things. What was the low point for you? I'm thinking particularly in terms of trying to trying to build and market an advisory firm. I know the 
the challenges on the marketing side of the business when you were in Australia. But in that journey of growing V2V, what was the... I think the low the low point or the hardest point for me in the very beginning was what you've already sort of called out and illuminated, which I, I say a lot, which is I didn't want to sell people anything. I almost didn't become an entrepreneur because I thought I there was no way I could sell. So I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to close a sale, right? Hmm. Because I had always been behind the scenes marketing person where you figure it out and put the initiatives in place and, and follow them through. And they call you and then they just hand you their business. It's great. Yeah, and they call me and that's how it works. And then that's just what it, they buy the product or, you know, like, so I... That was the one reason I almost didn't get into it. And then once I was in and I started, you know, getting some interest, but then people didn't call back or they didn't, you know, I'd call and leave a message. Like, how come they were so interested? So I really, really like I, I got to a point where I'm like, I can't, I can't believe this. Like I, I thought for I was like, I'm not going to make it, you know, what's going to happen? I, and I I surprise myself sometimes because once in a while, even today, I get in that mode again. I'm like, come on, you know better than that now. We've we've lived this long enough to right. know. But the assumed rejection, when in fact, most likely it's something else has happened, you know, and or they did find someone else and good for them, you know. So how did you get over the the pain or the fear or the lack of desire of of selling? I'll still say it's not my favorite thing to do, but Here's how. Here's what I tell my advisors because most who work with me are the same way. One, get super clear on your offering. So now I have two offerings, and so when someone asks me, "So how can you help?" I very clearly say, "Well, I work in one of two ways," and it's very clear. When I had the financial planning firm, I had my one sheet explain the service. At some point, I had had two different services. One was more cash, like budgeting, and one was more planning. I said, "This is my service. This is the fee. This is what it covers. This is the process. This is what you can expect." So it was very easy to explain it, and there and there was no negotiation or anything. It was just I, I let people know in advance. And at that point, like if you're super clear of exactly who you're serving, what it is you offer, what it is you do for them, what the benefits are for that one particular type of person, like either, either you are literally talking to that person who has that pain point and wants that thing, in which case they'll say, wow, Kristen, that's awesome. That's exactly what I want. Sign me up. Or, or they won't and they just move on and that's that. <laughs> yeah, so it's all about, it really is using all the marketing in a way to help me have more success at the ultimate sale, right? So I started going back from the financial planning side before a client even came into the office. As soon as they indicated an interest and, and so they called or emailed and said they wanted a consultation, I started, you know, essentially the selling process then if you want to call it that, by doing really good marketing, right? By being very clear in in the upfront call of, you know, asking questions. And then I developed a welcome kit that I'd send out before every consultation that I put in the mail. And it was a beautifully designed package. And it had a letter and it set an agenda. And it had the service offering in there. And it had my bio and basically like that. And so you sent this to prospects, like we're going to be needing, here's a welcome kit of just, here's exactly what I do. So I don't even have to actually explain it to you in the meeting. In fact, if you just aren't really into this, feel free to just not show up at the meeting. So some people would cancel. So it'd say like, dear so-and-so, this is to confirm your meeting on X, you know, X day. 
looking forward to meeting you. Here's what you'll find in this packet. And my service offering that was in there essentially was lined up, like I said, with all of the parts of the financial plan and little check, little like boxes next to each question. And people would come in, pull it out. They're like, okay, like as if they were supposed to do some work, right? And I might've said in there, here's what you, I think I had a sheet, you can bring these things to the meeting, but you don't have to, right? If you want to bring your statements and all that. And they'd come in with this green envelope. It was very noted. It was very this big oversized green envelope, they'd pull out the stuff, they'd pull out the service offering, and it would have check marks next to the questions that they had in like that they were worried about. And and inevitably they would say, Wow, this I didn't even know I needed to know about this, or wow, you knew everything I wanted to talk about. Or I mean, so it just shifted the conversation from the beginning, and I didn't have to worry that I was gonna have to explain it or share it. So then I was mm. able to work on through repetition and time asking at the end. So would you like to engage or would you like to talk about it? I've never been a high pressure, even with my advisor today, I'll say I'm not a high pressure person. I'm, I'm just not that way, but I have a very distinct process. And so then they would leave if they hadn't signed up right then, which was rare. They didn't usually sign up right then. Then I would immediately handwrite a thank you note and drop it in the mail now I do emails, but then I did that. And then I'd have a, just if I didn't hear from them, I'd send a follow-up email saying, hey, you know, a few days later, if I didn't hear back from them, I would send a follow-up email. And I just had the defined follow-up steps. So I think I had three touches after the meeting immediately. And then I would pace it out whether if I hadn't heard from them. But then I, I just made it a process, right? So I tried to handle any objections early on so that when I was in the meeting with them, I was able to totally focus on what are they about? What do they need? What are their issues and worries? So they, they were heard, right? So And then it just made it pretty easy by the end. To, we either knew we were fit or we weren't. Yeah, I just, I like that that framing, right? It, like, we don't have to do the haggle back and forth. Like you're, you're just either pretty much going to want this and have already connected by the time you come in or you won't, or you literally just won't even bother coming in. All of which is fine. Cause it means the meeting is really not very salesy, salesy at this point. Is there anything left? You've either already sold yourself or you haven't. Right. Exactly. And it's really, it was really more in the structured follow-up that we really needed to get into because that's what I'm teaching advisors a lot on. I'm like, you can follow up more than one time because people are busy. You know, you need to follow up multiple times and then put them on your email list and send them stuff and stay in front of them because most people aren't ready right away. So I, I think that's a really important thing for advisors to get. And it really backs up to kind of the macro view of like marketing is actually helping people make the decision on whether or not you're a good fit, right? So if you're enabling them by the more targeted, the more precise, the more exact your content is on the things that matter most to your audience, you're enabling them to help them make that decision of, do I want to talk to you or not? And the more you can integrate any of that into the total relationship, whether it's you know when they first hear about you or they've been a client for four years, you're providing a service, right? Through good marketing, you're helping people because they're able to make a decision. Yes, this is worth it for me to spend my time, money, and energy on, or no, I need to go a different direction. What advice would you have for newer advisors trying to get get started and going today? And and you have that similar, I'm 
I'm building from scratch. I don't necessarily have a, a natural market and the rest. Like I, I got to get going quickly the way that you did. So obviously my first thing is pick a target audience, know who you want to try to attract in and give it a go. You're not stuck. You're not married to it. It's not the one you have to use for the rest of your life. Give it a go for, I like to say a year. That's kind of my, my all the time answer. But the next thing is just get out and do some things, right? I went out and put hung up like flyers, like put, do something to get it rolling, put an article up to a target audience on your blog and share it on social media. Don't wait until you have it all figured out before you start engaging in marketing because you're going to make mistakes, you're going to change, but if you don't get the ball rolling, you'll keep putting it off trying to get the perfect website, the perfect this, you know, get a landing page up there that says coming soon here. In the meantime, put your email address in and we'll reach out to you. The relationships take a long time to build, takes a long time to to get people to the point of wanting to meet with you. So don't wait for perfection. Just get going and, and revise as you go. Yeah, I I had read a few years ago the book Lean Startup by Eric Ries, which to me was very impactful in this in this direction as well. You know, the, the whole framework is like you have to pick something to go after. And it's not specific to our industry, but like you you have to pick something to go after and go after it. But don't build it all fancy and try to make the perfect thing because even if you think you know what the perfect thing is, it, it's probably not actually going to turn out to be that. It'll be something at least a little bit different. It's just like make a thing. In fact, make the most minimally viable thing you can possibly make to see if anybody actually cares about that. And if they do, yes. put more resource into it, make it better, figure out how to market it better, figure out how to get, get more focus in there. Like you could totally ramp it up, but you know, don't kill yourself trying to pick the perfect thing out of the gate. You don't have to, and you probably can't mastermind it. Just pick a thing get it out there, see if anybody cares and responds to it. Because if it if it's at all useful, someone will raise their hand and say right. they like it. And if they do, then like, cool, you found a thing, do more. Right, right. I think that is one of the biggest things. And it's one of the hardest things, especially for advisors and financial planners, because we want to do everything perfectly, right? And you almost have to in the financial side of it. So I, my biggest thing of letting go of, you don't need perfection in marketing. And even today, everything's online. So you can change it or edit it or make adjustments. It's fine. Right. Like just test it, get it out there. The momentum will, will help you. So I think that's really important. So what, what comes next for you? That's a very good question. I'm really excited about where I am and the work I'm doing now. I find the balance of doing the one-on-one -on -one coaching for the solo advisors and then becoming the part of, you know, a team member for these REAs who, who are looking for marketing guidance. It, it's the beautiful balance. And I, so I feel I'm in the perfect stride right now, I would say, on that side of things. Looking ahead, I'm, I am looking at how do I want to structure the business? Do I want to scale and add people? Do I want to keep it how it is and enjoy having a full practice and engaging with the people I love? Like I'm trying to work out some of the operational elements of growth and where I'm going there. And then I want to be doing more speaking, in-person speaking. And I sure hope that 2021 allows for that. Yeah. Hopefully we'll actually have conferences I again. Know, I know. I know. Like I said, I'm like, to me, I am very much a relationship person. I want to be in front of humans. I want to mm. actually have you in the audience so I can engage and play off your energy. And, and sometimes 
I mean, Zoom has been helpful in that we can interact back and forth, but a webinar can be, you know, it can be lonely being the presenter in a webinar when you, you can't see everyone. So talking to your webcam and trying to smile and pretend or at least hope that everybody's smiling. Yeah. Back. You're like, I think, my, I think can you see me? You know, you're like, hello, are you out there? Are you listening? Do you hear me? And and, you know, technology is better than it used to be, but I really miss being in front of a live audience. So I've had the opportunity to speak at NAFA and FBA and some of the online conferences this year, which is really fun. And earlier this year, right before the pandemic hit, I, I had the pleasure of speaking in Arizona at the large firm forum for NAFA. And that was a, a great, fantastic conference and one where you could spend the, you know, it's a little smaller and you could spend a lot of time with all the attendees and really everyone could you know, have time to mix and mingle and speak to a number of the attendees. So that was a lot of fun. So that's really, I'm looking for more speaking opportunities in, as the years roll forward and we can get out of our homes again. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you, I know you've now been through this cycle a few times, like building the advisory firm and now building the marketing business. So you, you, you built successful businesses, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? I think what really matters to me is having, like I said, that personal connection with people and being able to have a, what I call a profound and positive effect on people's well-being. I think that's been a theme throughout you know, all of my career, even with marketing, I always have believed, even when I was marketing visa rewards programs or HELOCs, that I always believed that it was providing something for the betterment of the person who was engaged, who who ended up buying the service or product. And now to my level now, I've it's elevated to a level of when I'm working with my advisors, whether they're solo or part of a firm, it's like I know they're out there to help people improve their lives and help have a big impact in their their clients' lives. So I want to help my advisors have that success and find that most fulfilled life for them. To me, that's extremely rewarding, and I feel like I can have the biggest impact by helping advisors help more clients, right? So. So you, you've woven your life coaching work all the way back in full circle to, to bring it together now for advisors and how they're building their businesses to fulfill their lives. Yes, exactly. And, and on a personal front, I mean, my lead core value is, fr- is freedom and independent and being able to create and do what I want to do and, and have the choice. And I know we always have that, but I, I'm highly entrepreneurially focused I like to enable others to have choice and freedom. And I'm, it's just something I'm always looking for, you know, growth and new adventure and new exciting things. And I'm hopeful we'll see more of that in 2021. Yeah, no kidding. I hope so. I hope so. Well, well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.